okay, so I feel like music history was just made recently because I read that Tory Lanez sold his new album as an NFT. There was a million dollar, million copies sold for a dollar each, and so people will just resell his album. This confuses me because now I feel like I don't know anything about NFTs because this is not exactly the same album, but a million copies. I don't know. Here we go. So we're really rolling into the NFT world and seeing how that goes. <laughs> but anyways, of course, this is the Afternoon Podcast, and my name is Amy Tom. Thank you very much for joining. Today on the podcast, we have Mike Vitiglio, who is the Success and Solutions Engineer at LaunchDarkly. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. It's a pleasure. I am excited to chat with you today because I want to ask you some questions about game development because your background is in game dev. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you previously worked at Agora, which then became WB Games. And so your background is in um, game dev. Okay, I have some questions about how this really works, because I want to understand what is the gaming industry like? Because I've never worked in the gaming industry, and I'm not a developer. So what is it like to actually work in the gaming industry? Sure. So that question is a short question with a lot of nuance on the (laughs) answers, but I'll try my best to... uh, And unfortunately, it's going to sound like a cop-out, but it's the truth. It really depends on where you are in your life as well as what company you join. Mm -hmm. I have, for example, one dear friend of mine who lives very close to me, was completely indie and lived in a treehouse with an extension cord coming from his friend's place where he and his wife lived where they worked on a game by themselves, bottom to top. They learned everything from scratch. Wait. They were really successful with it. It was in, I believe it was in up, someplace upstate, but mm-hmm. I don't want to give too much away. It's kind of yeah, stuff yeah. that he shared with me during the development process. Oh. But, and so I would sort of say certainly like a, some very indie game movie style, like origin story stuff, like really gritty kind of stuff. But then you work at other organizations. I have some friends who wound up working at places like EA, big label, insert label here. And life is good, but it becomes this very kind of a grindy, just like I work on weapons. So every day I come in, I get my tickets in, I fill out stuff. And so depending on what you're into, the game industry could be very grueling and painful. And if you find the right job at the right place, it could be just coasting and very easy. The one thing that I'd say is very prevalent throughout for the most part, though, is the level of pressure and anxiety with regards to how is this title going to turn out? The deadline is always there. It's uh, as much as some larger teams can say, nope, it's coming out when it's ready. Nintendo can pull that off. Shigeru Miyamoto will say, nope, not ready. But for a lot of the devs down on the ground, it's like, nope, I guess I'm not going to spend time over the winter holiday with my family. I got to, you know, fix this patch and get it out there as soon as possible. So ultimately, what I recommend to anyone, this day and age is the time where you could really learn to teach yourself whatever you want in terms of technology stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you're like, oh, I want to write video games, don't just jump and get your loan and go to full sale like I did. It worked out for me, but I've seen a lot of people where they just didn't understand. They were just 18 years old and taking out this massive loan. It's look. Go online. Now you can. We couldn't then. But now go online, pick up an engine, whether it's Unity or Unreal or both or whatever. Take a couple of tutorial classes, get to the end and say, do I like this? And if you like it, great. And if not, good news. There's so many disciplines in game development as well that I honestly feel like it's something we should be teaching in high school because Mm. no other discipline requires like audio. We need audio. I guess we need a Foley artist, a music artist, a whatever there's so uh, music mm-hmm. psychology mm-hmm. Uh, marketing you name it there's so many ways and all of it under an umbrella of teamwork 
people multidisciplined working in close quarters, making things happen. I find it in colleges, it's like, all right, they're taking their CS degree and just putting up, they're just painting with this brush of, oh yeah, you're going to make games. And it's just CS. It's yeah. not really game design, but in a school environment, a high school environment, it's actually the reverse. You can get young kids into stuff like calculus. Like I learned calculus in 1990 something. Mm -hmm. And now when I went back to full sale and I was learning, I was like, oh, this is how I'm going to figure out how light, what value of light it's going to things have changed since, but back then doing basic shaders and stuff, it's, oh, this is how I figure out what color to light this in the right lighting or which direction the vehicle should go. It all had a purpose thanks to framing it in the game development kind right. of setup. Okay, cool. So Sorry, long answer, <laughs> but I answered it, I think. Yes, definitely. So give me some context about when you worked in the gaming industry and for how long. Sure. So I started, I graduated out of Full Sail in 2008. And then found myself having my first, like I was still trying to work with my buddies. Uh, I worked at the school for a little bit, worked with some buddies offline, trying to get various projects off the ground while trying to find employment. There was a big recession back then. I finally got to work officially for a game company with a studio called Chaos Studios. They're now gone. I worked for THQ. They were a part of THQ anyway, on a title called Homefront, where I worked in QA. And that was a lot of great fun, but one of the first lessons in terms of, again, what I was saying earlier, where you are in life and what you're doing. Back then, I had no real, I want to start a family kind of stuff. I was like, I just want to be in here. I just want to be a part of this. And so I didn't care if I wasn't developing. Fine, I'll test the game out. I'll start writing scripts to test. And it seemed like there was potential, but as we both know, at the end of Homefront, THQ and Chaos first, and then THQ eventually just disappeared. And I wound up doing machine vision for a bit. After that, though, I got a chance after about a year and a half, I got an opportunity to work at a company called uh, at the time Wireless Generation, uh, now Amplify Education, I think is what's called doing educational games in Unity. And that's where I really got to start really doing gamey kind of stuff. It's interactive entertainment, in my opinion. Games are a weird anachronism, but I saw a lot of potential for education and I was really excited to be a part of it. Yeah. And we worked on these like uh, different simulations for students to understand stuff from a variety of different perspectives. I'm not sure how much I could share because some of it was under contract, but it was a lot of fun starting a team, getting people together, working with developers every day, just crunching out, make something fun and educational at the same time in the mobile space as well. It was really super cool. After that, I floated around again just because I had my first daughter, uh, well, my first child, my daughter Zelda, and got to, so I went back into just working regular hum and drum development wherever I could find it. And then I landed eventually at Agora where I got to work on some of their, Agora works like a, a, the company is provide service to other games. So I got mm. to work on some of the backend services for uh, some of the titles that they were uh, pumping out at the time. Pretty sure I could say I worked on Doom 2016 to some degree. I'm in the credits anyway, and oh, okay. uh, certainly put a lot of my blood, sweat and tears into it for sure. And yeah. it was a great time. That, let me tell you, the team at Agora, uh, now WB Games, were some of the, like the gold standard. I would normally join teams and feel like there were some things I knew better, some things that I didn't. When I got to Agora, it was... I was surrounded by brilliant people who frankly gave me the, the worst case of what do they call it? Uh, imposter syndrome ever. Uh, mm. And because uh, everyone was just so sharp and really knew everything that they were doing. And I really got to learn quite a lot, made a lot of friends there and uh, look back on it rather fondly, honestly, in mm -hmm. a lot of regards. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the gaming industry then and pressure of the industry, because I imagine that the pressure of the industry is almost like this cooker for building really good relationships with your coworkers because they go through the same shit as you. <laughs> Up and down. Yeah, uh, I'd say that it's like any other uh, high pressure scenario. There are some people who can't handle their, uh, mm -hmm. I, you know what? I can't even say some people. 
depending on the scenario, even I can have a short temper and not be tolerant of someone's lack of capacity. There's also a tendency to, for a lot of individuals to say, you know what, I don't want anyone to realize I am not good at this. So I'm going to keep on putting as much pressure on myself to make sure I succeed. And then I can be a part of the club. And that's, a, and I fell for that too. The pressure is serious because you want to prove yourself. You want to, you want people to believe in you as much as you believe in yourself. Sometimes you start to not believe in yourself, especially for some of the uh, younger folks who might might find themselves without people around them to, egg the, you know, not egg them out. What's the word I'm looking for? Support them. Show them yeah. like, yeah, Yo, you got this, man. It's good. If they don't have a good sense of self, a good sense of self-esteem, it's easy for it to start whittling down. And then you start to believe in the lies that you're telling yourself. I don't belong mm -hmm. here. This isn't right or whatever. Yeah. I was really lucky. I had a great person that I became friends with a couple, actually. I don't want to start singling anyone out, but I'd say my buddy Graylin over at WB Games. Now he's, w he's still there at WB Games. Is We still talk to this day. He's a really great guy. And there were a lot of times I was in the middle of a fire and he really helped me out. And then a buddy of mine who passed away recently, Andrew, he was just like, we'd go out and have beers and talk about life and yeah. stuff like that. Again, depends on where you are. I hope everyone that goes into wherever you're working, but especially in the game industry can find those buddies to remind you like, no, it's okay. That's just how they talk. They're not like always in a jerk. It's just they're under a lot of pressure or don't worry, you're doing fine. You just don't see what, how much you're actually trying to pull off. But the yeah. pressure's there because as I mentioned before, the game's got to release, contracts need to be handled and that's just the nature of business. Mm -hmm. And Frankly, compared to any other business, the game industry is inherently gambling because unlike it, most in unlike any other industry outside of entertainment, in any entertainment industry, I should say, it's all a crapshoot. You can have the most polished album, put so much money into it, and then the artist doesn't sell a single copy. Meanwhile, the one that they made with the four track in their garage was like the breakthrough. Same thing with games. When I look at it, one of my favorite games from like 10 years ago, it was like XCOM. They did a reboot of XCOM. I was a fan of it growing up in high school. So when I saw that it was coming out on tablets and it was like every, I was like, this game's going to be great. It did fine, but it didn't blow the doors open. It wasn't like, mm. it didn't shatter records or anything. Yeah, it looks, whatever, good job. Meanwhile, you take a game like Minecraft, which was like effectively like a 4chan cube world rehash that was like just, just crapshoot. And it turned into this amazing thing. No one can really, it, that, I think they bought it for four billion dollars or something like that. Whoa! I, mean, I didn't know that. Holy! Look, check, check, check. I'm sure it was with a B. Yeah. Uh, maybe it was two billion, but either way, all I'm saying is that like it, it's a crapshoot. And so basically, from a business standpoint, if my margins are in such a variable state, you're going to squeeze as much as possible your employees and try to get the most out of them, which can pr can generate a lot of negative kind of bad mojo, bad people mm -hmm. practices, uh, work-life balance suddenly becomes like a, yeah, we said that when it was nice. Now we got to release it next week, keep working mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But right. that's not unique to the game industry. I'm sure people working for NASA have those days as well. Yeah. So why is the gaming industry like this where it's so high pressure? Is it because there are so many game developers or is it because the deadlines are so tight? or something else? Uh, a mixture of both because game development is real-time development across multiple disciplines. And so trying to find someone who can develop on your team is, for one, you're probably going to be looking for someone very good who also has a passion for games. What I've discovered coming out of Full Sail is like, not everybody's into games growing up. Evidently, I'm like this relic of a, like a, as my wife uh, calls <laughs> me sometimes, man-child. That's uh, just like, I just have a passion for the industry. And because of that, there are people who are 
perfectionists are going to work all day, all night. And it creates this sense of, I, that's what we are, that we're going to be passionate and put everything into it. And if you ever want to take a break, you start to feel like you're ripping off your cohorts. So like, I shouldn't take a break. My buddy's still working. I got to keep working. Um, but besides that, also, if you're a, I know people now outside of the game industry who, as developers, are one trick ponies and are very well compensated to just, oh, I write stuff for Salesforce. I write Salesforce code all day. That's it. And they get paid six figure salaries and get to call their hours and coast. But you go to the game industry and it's, nope, now you're going to learn in this language to do this because technology keeps improving and we've got to keep up with the consoles and the latest and greatest and go, 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 mm. go. Retention, like burnout, is a big thing mm. because it's, Eventually you start saying, I want to spend time with my family. And my buddy gets to have a vacation and a regular nine to five, which becomes a dream once you start to get a little bit older. And well, for some, <laughs> no, some people like, like the Cliff Blazinski, if you get high enough, actually, I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, the Cliff Blazinski's and all of the top notch, I'm showing my age, like that Cliff is the guy, Cliffy B was the guy who I grew up being like, I want to be like that guy. Folks get to that status and then they can just chill and say, this is what I want to do because they're these like Uber designers. But anyone, the further down that chain you go, the more it's, yeah, I want to do gameplay code, but I'm just doing user-generated content storage and management and endpoint writing and stuff like that. It's not very, not very game designy, but you're a part of it. And it feels good in the end, but it, it is high pressure. Right. Yeah. So I want to ask about what kinds of resources actually go into developing a game. I guess specifically in your experience, how many people are involved in producing? I would say, as I started with, some games take two people yeah. <laughs> in a in a treehouse yeah. and mm -hmm. doing their best. It really the, the scope really varies on how big of a product. For example, if you're going to go cell shaded and very few characters and it's more about the gameplay doing something similar to say Steven Sausage Roll. I don't know if you ever heard of that game. Really cool uh, puzzle game. Very hard, but very fair. Probably wouldn't take a lot of people. You just need a, you could probably even fiver your way through some of the graphic assets and such. Mm. Um, and not a big deal. But once you're talking about, you no, know, we want to put it on multiple platforms and we're going to be using this particular, we're going to use the Unreal Engine. So some of the plugins may need to be customly written around it. And if now you're going to go console even more, that starts to really scale up. And so we could talk about hundreds of people working all the time. And then if you're really big enough, then you could start investing into, and the gambling gets even higher. Now your investors are talking millions of dollars. They want to see billions mm -hmm. in sales. They're going to want to see a QA department and they're going to need a networking team. And let me tell you, the backend resources to serve any kind of game that has Nearly every game has an online presence, even if you're not aware of it. Behind the scenes, someone's storing your data regarding when you log in, what's your account, how much credits you may have, your save state, stuff like that. You have someone's got to write that. The, the game has to will speak to some endpoint, but that endpoint has to be a computer running some software that will store and manage. And when you're talking the usage time, like when a game first releases, it spikes. Mm -hmm. Very rarely do you see a spike later in the life of the game. If anything, you're lucky because you can grow with it. But oftentimes you're just kind of like sitting there waiting for uh, like an earthquake. Like, here we go, release time. And you're looking at the clock and then the concurrent users numbers start to mm -hmm. go up and those servers start to, you could, if computers could make sound like a submarine underneath, it'd be like, and you yeah. could feel the pressure of your systems. You're looking at your memory usage, mm -hmm. CPU, just hoping they stay up. Sorry to not give a definitive answer, yeah. but the fact is, is because there's so many different organizations to so many different targets, different game types, it really could vary a mm -hmm. lot. Okay, but we're going from two at a low end to what yeah. is like a high hundreds. end, like hundreds. Okay. 
hundreds, maybe even thousands if you want to include contractors and stuff like that. And then mm. people who would, another great little caveat is, oh no, we want to sell it in Japan, for example. And of course, and we want it to be in Japanese. We don't want to have them just read in English. We want them to re like, we want to localize it to that region, make it relevant. Maybe even changing some of the story content because turns out in this country, this is rather offensive. We can't talk about this. So we have to rewrite mm. this part of the game. It becomes very similar to movies, in fact, in that regard. If you want to make an indie movie like Blair Witch Project style, get a camera, go out into the woods with your friends and make it up as you go. But if you want to, you want to make some Marvel Cinematic Universe like Endgame, Endgame or Infinity War, it's going to take, you're going to see those credits for a while. Mm. You're going to need two end credit scenes. Right. You need a mid credit scene. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Because I imagine oh, yeah. too that like, when you get up to these instances where you have hundreds and maybe even thousands of people working on one game, there's just so much to develop. There's so much to think about. There, like, how many months does this take? Oh, years. Uh, you wouldn't even really talk in months. If you look at uh, games like Destiny, for example, uh, that's out there, Bungie has this MMO uh, FPS RPG kind of thing. It's never really ending, strictly mm. speaking. I guess that's part of the hard part too, is that you have product leads in uh, product manager, people in charge of the overarching product saying, look, yes, we did want to have a certain feature in there, but we can't do it. We have to release it by Christmas, cut it out kind of stuff. So it, the definition of done is another one of those like enemies of, of doing great things. Because yeah. when you're a small skunk works team doing whatever you got to do. And this is a passion project. It's not done until you're ready. But mm. when you take a look at, you have the option to go that route, I should say. Whereas when it's no, the decision makers are not even gamers. They're investors. They want to see their money back. The decision is all pretty much business. One goal, no soul. I, I don't mean to, that sounds very negative on the <laughs> decision makers, but it is business. And it's unfortunately- the, the game, yeah. Yeah. You can't be like, oh, but it's going to be great when it's done. They're like, dude, look, we're talking millions of dollars here. Is that going to really do it? And mm -hmm. sacrifices are made. It's really sad, actually, when you see the games that really should have been one way and they turn out another and you're like, that was a business decision that totally hobbled what could have been something great. Mm -hmm. But you know, thankfully, we're just talking games. We're not talking like cancer research or anything like that. It's yeah. just a crappy launch of whatever. Yeah. So in this like development of the game and like all of the moving parts and all of the developers that are going into to producing this like how is this organized you know sure. what i mean so, like there's just so much no, yeah. going on like how does it go from the start to the end there just seems like there's oh. so much <laughs> well oftentimes what'll end up happening is uh like, so let's just disregard the smaller company the smaller skunk yeah. works a little because for them it's really just people getting together they come up with an idea and then they work with what they got and they build it out and that's fine mm -hmm. but with large AAA studios oftentimes they already have ips or teams who have created other ips come out like it's similar to for example and i have no inside information regarding the new wb game back for blood for example but it is the old studio that basically the same people who made left left for dead so that's an example of not an ip being bought but you get a team and you're basically making a spiritual successor yeah. imagine picking up team ico's core creator folks and then having to make a ico s game on the xbox for example mm -hmm. um not saying that's going to happen i would love to see it happen but it'd be uh so you start with just like a what can we sell so they'll find a lot of the same thing nintendo does all the time just hey people like mario another mario go 
And it's not a whole lot of, that's oftentimes why you see, if you want something different, you have to fish out into the indie, like not triple A, but single A as uh, ACG made in one of his videos talked about games that are just a little bit below that threshold because those organizations are trying to basically put their money on something new and fresh. Yeah. So it, it, I feel like it was a little bit more prevalent back 10 years ago when we had this explosion of indie kind of devs, like Super Meat Boy, Braid, Fez, all of these like interesting ideas were starting to come out. And now we're going back into this very kind of repetitive, samey kind of stuff. But eventually those numbers will start to not look as favorably and maybe they'll invest into new ideas as well. But it's just risky. You don't want to put a lot of money into something and for the love. <laughs> like yeah. that just doesn't really happen. Yeah. And when you're dealing with millions of dollars, the investors need to turn around. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And like that makes sense. Oftentimes that... they'll cut it a short mm -hmm. because they... they'll say, no, you know what? This isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. No one's going to like it. And they might mm. be totally wrong. Like, uh, for example, when they made uh, the team that made Portal, and this isn't firsthand knowledge, but this is pretty well known in some of the circles. The original sequel to Portal was going to have no portals in it. But when Valve went around talking to folks and said, hey, so check out this new game, they were like, eh, I want more Portal. And the irony, though, is that what got Portal to where it was at, for those who remember the orange box from like 2007, it was totally out of nowhere. I remember playing through all of Portal in like an evening after I came out of, I finished class and then played through, actually, I was in uh, one of my first like team projects and we we're all playing the orange box. I beat it, heard that Jonathan Colton song, it's still alive. This was a triumph. And I was like, oh my God, they're talking to me. This is amazing. This is an amazing <laughs> game. And it was amazing because it came out of nowhere. No one knew that this product was coming out and was going to do it. But the irony is that once you see that something works, you're reluctant to try something new. And the irony, though, is that what got you to be familiar was when it was. So mm -hmm. it's, and again, adds yet another layer of risk for the big players, because now they've got a very important IP that all the fans love, but the team behind it wants to do something totally. I think kind of like when you see authors decide to write books under a pseudonym, because they're like, ah, if I got to write one more book like the last one, I'm done. And Game studios don't get that liberty. Yeah. How much do does the operations cost? Like, how much does I it really, cost to produce a game? Oh, I can't give any specifics on any sp particular mm -hmm. game. But uh, if we're talking AAA, it's, it goes well into the, like, easily tens, if not hundreds of millions. And mm -hmm. if the game is ongoing, like, it's going to have an online presence, infrastructure is expensive. Like, environments where you are, mm. like, so when I was talking before about you get a QA team, for example, and now you've got, imagine you're this team, you're making this first-person shooter, your designers and your developers are working, they make like a gun shoot a certain way and the gameplay works a certain way, great. Okay, how do we know if it's fun? Well, you hand it to a bunch of testers to sit down and play with it. And if you're really big, you're gonna have multiple teams of testers all playing. Now, what is this all being hosted on? Well, you have to have an environment similar to what the people are using in production for your QA team, quality right. assurance. And then on top of that, you may have another piece of infrastructure, like a, what they call staging, that acts as like this intermediary, it's like a dress rehearsal for releasing into production. Those machines that they put up to make this happen easily can go for like thousands a day. We're talking hardware that is just massive drives, massive amounts of yeah. stuff. And they're necessary in order, like you could build them yourself if you wanted to, but right. goodness gracious, what we've learned, thankfully, as an industry is like, as much as I'm loath to see, I don't like seeing big companies just taking over an environment, but they, the guilty pleasure of it is that they're very convenient. And I couldn't even imagine how much more expensive it could have been if 
people were still just, yeah, we just ordered a bunch of Dell boxes and then we're going to have a team of IT people build each and every single one of them. And maybe by the end of the week or two, we can have it ready to try. Instead, go to AWS, clickety-clack. You can even run a Terraform script, spin up. The build's going to be big, but in terms of turnaround time, it's much more instantaneous. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. yeah. equally expensive. <laughs> so can you... I'll, Help me understand how environments actually work. So like the idea of having multiple different environments, like if we were to go back to an example, you said like developing a different storyline for the Japanese game versus the American game. Is that going to be another environment? Is that how that works? Mm -hmm. Not really. No, okay. and that's more of just like uh, making a specific build the way it is now when a day comes where I think other technologies become more prevalent in the industry, like feature flags and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Maybe we can rely on that tech to do it, but usually it's just a different build or some internal, like, you know, it maps to one file or another to generate. It can be more, more complicated, depends on the scenario, but excuse me. What uh, an environment is, is try to imagine if uh, I'm going to use a metaphor here for a race car. You got a team, you have these engineers working on this race car and they're inside this like very big, not a clean room, but it's like this one giant garage where they have all these tools and they're working on it. And maybe a little tiny circular track where they can at least turn it on and go around a circle. That's the dev environment. And then you've got a QA environment where they actually have this inside track that's similar. Like it has all the major turns that you would see, but it's not like any particular racetrack. And then you have the QA team sitting in those in the car, driving around letting you know like a test giving it a test run saying hey looks like we got a bad suspension on this turn maybe we should whatever they report back to the dev team say hey whatever fix that all right then staging would be like a a facsimile of the next big race where like a certain like you can expect to try to test it against what's going to really happen out there oh. and then production is the actual race itself yep. so as you could imagine all of these different like the closer you get to production the more expensive and frankly more numerous uh these kind of dummy environments whose jobs is to satisfy a level of, to give a level of confidence to the team like yes it's ready for prime time they're still extremely expensive but that level of confidence it's better to never need to ask for forgiveness mm. because we're in a fickle world. In the game industry, again, because games are not a necessity, if someone is, like, I have since dropped out of Destiny because of some design choices they've made that simply are incompatible, or I've changed so much that their design decisions are no longer compatible with me. So they've lost me. So in that same regard, if you wanna do whatever you can to make sure you don't lose that prospective customer, and for me, it was personal. Thankfully, it was my, like my decision to get back some time in my life. But if you, for example, put out a patch, actually, it's very similar to what happened uh, in Destiny. I remember uh, at one point, Destiny 2 had come out and they had changed some of the drop methodologies. Uh, so people were getting more stuff all the time. They were getting more uh, loot drops everywhere. And it, over time, it, at first it was super exciting because it never happened. But then eventually you're like, now I got all the things. I don't really care to play. And that kind of mistake is how do we fix that? And again, you don't wanna to have to get there. You would rather never get to that position. Now, granted, that's more of a design choice and that's not, it, it's a mm. little tricky to anticipate right away when that happens, but regardless, you're still bound to the deploy process and whatever. The last thing you wanna do is accidentally put out an update and it wipes out people's user credits or all your yeah. progress. There was, I was playing a game, I won't name it because I don't wanna, it, it's a great game and I don't wanna disparage the team, but I played it on my Xbox 
And I was getting some really, uh, on my Xbox Series X, I was really happy. I got to, a, I unlocked a certain number of weapons. It felt great. And then I realized that the save goes across to like my uh, my Windows machine. So I played on my Windows machine and it wasn't there. And I was like, oh, that's weird. I don't see any of my guns. So I went back down to the Series X to get all my, get all my goodies and whatever. And it overwrote my save with the save from Windows mm -hmm. and I lost everything. And I was like, well, I don't even care anymore. Like all 40 hours of my time have been wasted. Yeah. Fair enough. And out I go. That's like a level of problem that maybe they can't save my time, but if they can see that and then address it sooner than later, it saves them from having the pain of until that release happens. And then that's where the pressure comes back in. Like now yeah. some developer out there has to identify the problem, fix it, do a rollout. And because they can't control that state of the software until a new release goes out, the pain lives on. The fire continues. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So yeah, there's just so much going on with the release and so many different ways that it could go wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I can't feel give the pressure now. Answer. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, honestly, it was a big part of one of the release I had leaving the leaving gaming in general. It's not really behind me, but it's more of a hobby now for fun. I like doing it. I still feel very passionate with it, but it was such a relief to think I can just say, look, I'm going to take the, the week in between Christmas and, and New Year's off and not have to be like, but or hmm, hmm. So, yeah, no one works around that time. Why would you even ask? Mm -hmm. Don't even take the time. Just It'll yeah. be quiet days. And yeah, game industry, most of the time, holidays are just as scary as anything else. Because yeah. if something does go awry and no one's around, it's rough. So and I tip my hat to all of them. <laughs> when did you good, get good out of the gaming industry? Around, I'd say four years ago, I think. About four years uh, back, I, I walked away from it. I don't know, just you get to a point where you, you, I was commuting quite a bit and just lost that that love and feeling. Like I was just like, I got into this to make my dreams, to make my games and stuff. And it was good enough for a while to just work on other people. Oh, I got to work on Doom and I got to this. Yeah, but there was still so many things I wanted to make that I just wasn't gonna. It just wasn't gonna happen. And I've come to terms with that. Maybe one day I'll land on a million dollars or something and, and make those try to make those dreams happen. But in the end, I would rather spend time with my daughter and child and my son and... No, my whole family. How about that? Just spending time with the kids and relaxing. And the working from home thing really worked out to my benefit. Mm -hmm. I hope that the industry overall, after COVID, people start to realize like work from home is actually a very viable and robust and resilient kind of uh, model. It does take a different discipline, but it gives people so much more time and flexibility, as well as helping to res resuscitate a lot of the small towns around America. Like I live yeah. in a small town in upstate New York. And I get to bring an extra income into here that frankly, like you wouldn't find a local business offering, but a company in San Francisco thinks that I'm the cheapest thing that they've got on staff. Yeah. I shouldn't have said that out loud. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> You're fine. And when did you start lurking okay. at Launch Darkly? <laughs> So Launch Darkly came up after I, uh, so after I left, after I, I was going to say Agora, after I left WB Games, an offer from an, a dear friend of mine, he's not old, or he's <laughs> as old as me, I think, Dan Papandrea, he reached out to me and said, hey, would you be a great company called Sysdig? Would you want to come check it out? And I was thinking, like, hey, I'll try out. I want to learn some new stuff. This container stuff seems neat. And I really wasn't getting a lot of time uh, to look yeah. into that where I was. So I went and worked over there doing support, but things got a little bit, as time went on, it like, uh. I just really wasn't in, uh, as into it as much. It, it basically, what happened was a recruiter reached out to me and said, hey, you should check this out. And what sold me the most on was that it was so weird. I looked at Launch Darkly and I was like, okay, so it's like a Boolean, but it's online. I don't get it. And then as I was just running, I was making a basic app to use the platform just to check it out. I realized that was the answer 
to a lot of the fires that had occurred in my past. Mm. There were situations where I remember at, I'm going to say, I could say one, but it could be at any of my old company, anywhere in my past life, of my past lives. There are situations where the fire went off and all we had to do was just turn off what was going wrong. But in software, there's no real valve to turn off. All you could do is redeploy, restart, or get people up. And when I saw that, I was like, wait a second, this is, if implemented in all of those problems, I could have been spared from being woken up in the middle of the night or having to have ruin an entire holiday weekend because someone deployed something that no one wanted. And that's when I was like, this is great. This is amazing. And then on top of that, they were saying, yeah, we're looking for a solutions engineer. I was like, so wait, what is, so I don't even have to support anything. I just have to tell people this stuff's awesome. That's so easy. Okay. I, can, <laughs> I already think it's awesome. So I'll do it. And that's how I wound up and launched Darkly. Lev Lezinski, my, my, the one who hired me and Steve Glass have been the ones who got me in. And one thing I love about working here, I'm sorry, this is a little bit off topic, but I just, it bears saying is I felt so appreciated and like, it, and like a part of something and it was, and you know, it's amazing how it's kind of like that scene in the office. Uh, I don't know if you've watched it, but there's this one where the accounting team is like, they're upset because they're not getting a cut of the commission from the sales team they find out. And then they decide to have this like a uh, big get meeting to talk about negotiating how they're going to split up the commission. And they have this whole spread out. And then the accounting team comes in. It's, this is all we wanted. We just wanted the spread. And then they realize like, oh, we don't have to offer them anything. We just got to make them feel happy. And that's like, it really speaks volumes, honestly. Mm. It's the same thing that happened to me. As I launched Darkly, something I believe in, I like, I, I really appreciate everything about the platform and what it's going to do it transformatively to workflows and such. Mm. But to also be at a place where I sincerely felt like I was a part of something. Like, what do you think, Mike? <laughs> I was yeah. like, I think it's great. Whoa, Thanks for okay. asking. Wait, okay. If there are any business owners out here listening to this that are like, why does he believe in this so much or why does he love this so much what was it about what they did that made you so happy whenever i would try to contribute an idea i didn't feel like i was swimming upstream there were times where i would try to get people and organizations to do things as simple as like adopting a git strategy that is now commonplace today at three different organizations i tried to say look guys i read the manual and we're all using either they were using SVN and we're stuck in it or we're using Git, but weren't using branches. That was a thing, at least one place. Mm -hmm. And I'd get shot down and they do. And I oftentimes would feel now that you put yourself out there, we're going to make it sound like you're that goody good guy. That's trying to make everybody do things their way. When I'm like, look, I'm just trying to be helpful. And instead I would just crawl into my shell and, yeah. and then eventually just give up. I don't really want to Every time I talk, I feel like I have now like the scarlet letter. So yeah, so we'll come into Launch Darkly. I started saying, hey, what if I made a SDK plugin for Unity Engine or the Unreal Game Engine? And they were like, that would be amazing. Can you do that? And I'm like, no debate, no fight. I could just do it. And and that's how actually I wrote the, I wound up writing the Unreal Engine Unity plugin for the client and then also the uh, Unity counterpart and just finished making a game for it, actually a game called Launch. Now we're working on some other stuff. Not really getting that, like a, it's a big explorative thing. It's just me and a lot of great volunteers helping me out along the way, but to definitely be good to the people that you meet in your life, because mm -hmm. the people in my, uh, one of the people that came out of the woodwork to help with that game that I was working on launch, yeah. uh, a Lunar Lander clone was an old friend from Full Sails. He was in the audio thing. He went for audio production and got great guy, Dean Krasesky. And so I reached out to him. I was like, dude, he lived right around the corner from me. I was like, dude, are you still doing music? And he said, yeah, man. And I said, here, can you make this? And he's like, all right. In two weeks, he gave me a couple of tracks and my game had music. Yeah. So again, good to have a diverse set of friends and discipline because it makes things easier. Yeah.
Definitely. And fun. One of the articles that just got submitted to Hacker Noon that I edited the other day, he gave some advice and it was make more friends with lawyers. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's nice. That's oh, nice man. advice. <laughs> you, know, it, you know, like, again, talk about multidiscipline in terms of intellectual property law and other legal stuff. Yeah. Having a lawyer handy because mm-hmm. I'm a developer. Like, I could, I'm not saying I'm a genius, but I'm a pretty smart dude. I could figure stuff out. And when I look at legal, I tried to start a nonprofit about a year ago and it totally floundered. I, if it wasn't for this pro bono lawyer, that's been helping me through this. And even he was like, I don't know how you would have gotten out of this. If they, how they could have expected anyone like just yourself to figure your way through this. We're almost out of it now. So yeah, definitely like never look at someone and be like, they're not relevant to me. Yeah, because they can provide insights that you couldn't even begin to imagine. I think about how most of the game industry got sideswiped when Nintendo released the least powerful console, the Wii, and managed to trounce on like the 360 and the PS3, which was still lagging behind anyway, because they just found this. Yeah, no, we're going to befriend the old ladies who want to play tennis yeah. in their living room with their grandkids. It's so yeah. Keep your keep your team diverse and and mm. uh, in good in good uh, good spirits. Yeah, I definitely agree. Amazing. Mike, (laughs) thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. If we want to find you and what you're working on online, where can we look? Sure. All my work is uh, primarily for my, is with Launch Darkly, as I alluded to earlier, where I'm working on these interactive kind of demos for them, but also evangelizing and uh, helping to uh, sell the product to would-be consumers. Yeah. If you want to see what we're up to, feel free to check us out at launchdarkly.com. We have a great blog, ongoing blog there as well, and a lot of great information. So perfect. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you like this episode of the Hacker Noon Podcast, don't forget to like it, share it, subscribe to it. And you can find us online at Hacker Noon on all these socials. This episode was produced by Hacker Noon, hosted by me, Amy Tom, and edited by your lovely audio wizard, Alex. Stay weird, and I'll see you on the internet. Bye-bye. Hacker Noon Podcast.